heart that has been born of God, I call you to stand and let us sing together and praise God who is worthy. Welcome to Newcastle Bible Church. I'm Rose Wright and this is my husband Jay and we are both involved in the music ministry. We're glad that you're here with us today. You can help us out a little bit by filling out the check-in card that you got inside your worship folder. When you're done, you can put it in the tables over by the doors. Now, if you'd rather, uh, you can do it electronically if you've downloaded our the Newcastle app. 
And if you're visiting with us today, we want to extend a special welcome to you and also invite you to go to the welcome desk in the North Commons to pick up any information that you would like about the church and a gift. Thanks for worshiping with us today, Newcastle. We are very thankful that each and every one of you is here. And I'm just also very proud of you. You have a, you have a reward waiting for you in heaven for making it here this morning on one hour less of sleep. So good for, good for you all. And uh, it's a privilege to be here with you. I hope you feel that way as well. A privilege to sing together, study God's word together, and pray together. And just to celebrate our common salvation and our common Savior together. So before we continue singing, would you please just bow with me in a word of prayer? Lord, we want to praise your name. We want to uh, hearken to the call of Psalm 150, um, 150, that everything that has breath to praise you. Because we know that even the rocks will cry out in praise because they have been created by you, Lord. All creation testifies to your glory. You made all of the heavenly host. You know every star by name. You know how many grains of sand there are. You know the thoughts of every man, woman, and child. You know each of your creation. There is no nothing that you have created that is out of your control. Every atom, every electron is within your control and doing exactly as you please. You uphold all creation by the word of your power. And yet, despite our rebellion against you, despite our sinfulness, our brokenness, you entered into that creation that you made. You miraculously entered in and you saved us from our sin. While we were your enemies, We weren't looking for you. We didn't want you. But yet in your mercy, you saved us and you washed us. And so, Father, I pray that that would cause our hearts to be lifted in praise to you this morning as we think about how great a salvation we have and how great a God you are. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, you have the famous passage of the hall of faith with a common refrain all throughout it is by faith, by faith, as it goes through the heroes of the Old Testament, the common thread being that they were all saved by faith, not by works, never it was by works. In the Old Covenant, it was still by faith. And that is the same for us today. And what are we supposed to do with that faith? Well, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, in light of all those examples of faith, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you please, in faith, stand with us this morning and let us worship the Lord through song. We see the hand of God and the light of creation. 
the Father's own dear. With the power of His promise in their hearts, of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. We will stand as children of the promise. And the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. I think the prophets saw the day when the long for Messiah would appear with the power to break the chains of sin. church was called to go. In the power of the Spirit to the lost, to deliver captives and to preach good news in every corner of the earth. We will stand as children of the promise. shall prevail for we know in Christ all things are possible for all who call upon his name we will stand as children of the promise we will fix our eyes on him our souls reward till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on Him, our souls reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done.
joy and excitement this morning that we welcome our global outreach partner, Mike Hansen, with Biblical Counseling Ministries, to present his ministry to us. Mike is no stranger to Newcastle, having worshiped with us 
and been a part of our leadership for several years in the past. Mike founded Biblical Counseling Ministry seven years ago and has been instrumental in getting our biblical counseling started and growing to what it is today. He has served as our director of biblical counseling for a number of years. Biblical Counseling Ministries has grown to a team of 10 and is now serving seven central Illinois churches with three more on the horizon. Mike, would you please join me on the platform as we watch this testimonial video? Steve and I met uh, 21 and a half years ago. Yes. Somewhere around there. Um, and I actually just had separated from my first husband and he was my telephone man. I got called to her place and we hit it off really well the first time we met. I, I had been single for nine years and um, multiple. she had multiple problems. So I had to go back multiple times. Well, he called me like two weeks later after the issue was resolved with my telephone and said, I just, hey, this is Steve. And um, I just wanted to check to see how your problems were going. And by the way, do you want to go out? And the rest is history. <laughs> it's no surprise um, because it was a second marriage that I just took my brokenness to my second marriage. And uh, I was becoming very frustrated in my marriage to Steve. And I knew it was my brokenness though. I was frustrated with him, but knowing that I couldn't change him because that's what God told me. God told me, it's, it, you have to own yourself, Monica, that I, it's, let me have Steve, you deal with you. And that was very clear to me, but that did not decrease my frustration with my marriage. I didn't know how to get myself out of that. I, I just didn't know who could help me. And so finally, I said, I'm, I, I gotta go talk to my pastor. I gotta go pa talk to Pastor Tom. I need help. I didn't know how Steve would react to that. And honestly, I, and quite frankly, I didn't care how he was gonna react. I just knew that I needed it very badly and I needed it quickly. Um, and uh, so we started going to biblical counseling at our church. I, uh, um went through all my life going through the motions. We called it the holy motions of Christianity. And here I was, came to find out with through counseling that figured out I wasn't even actually saved myself. I hadn't really given my life to Christ. I was dancing around it, doing all the uh, external things to look good to everybody and be a good Christian. But uh, finally one night, and one of the most penetrating things I've ever been in, Ben, our counselor, stopped everything. Room got quiet and he looked me right square in the eye, and I mean, just like a laser, and um, said, Steve, do you, are you really saved? And you know, it took all that time to come up and understand that I really wasn't. And right then that night, he asked me, would you like to give your life to Christ tonight? And I didn't hesitate, just did it. Um, and that, like I say, it was life-changing. And, and then as far as going forward with our counseling, it was really good for Monica too then, because she was dealing with a Christian husband, mm -hmm. which was, that was yeah. pretty good. We were good. equally yoked. <laughs> 
I could totally see that um, the Holy Spirit has ca had captured him and that um, the revelation of God's word was really blossoming a lot. And so in lieu of that then, of course, his heart was more filled and out of the abundance, then, all, then you saw that fruit of that and the actions started to follow where it was slow to anger, it was quick to forgive, um, grace was more abundance in in his approach to me first of all which was became such a, a safety for me that I no longer had to walk on eggshells at home that I can truly um, trust that my husband wanted the best for me and he wanted to be the best husband for me because he was now accountable to God not just to me giving him a cold shoulder or nagging at him, you know. Um, and so that those were the, some really um, tangible things that I saw in him that was just so amazing um, that only God could do that. Seeing my wife in a beauty, not for her physical beauty, but in a brand new, brand new beauty as being... Uh, almost like a sister in Christ and we were sharing, gonna share our lives together and it was gonna be well done because God is, it was the basis of our life. And he has been since then. I've really received more than what I ever expected. Um, first of all, um, freedom from bitterness, from perfectionistic tendencies, um, with a better identity of, of who I am supposed to be as a wife, but the icing on the cake uh, was Steve's uh, surrendering to the Lord and becoming a believer. And now we're equally yoked and we're walking together, we're growing together, we're being sanctified together. And now we are so thrilled to be helping other people um, experience the same wonderful walk through biblical counseling. Well, what that really is, is a testimony to God's power. And <clears throat> what a beautiful testimony to the truth that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. That's truth. That's truth. And God could take a hurting heart, God could take a dead heart, and change it through the power of the word by the wonderful counselor of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> it also testifies to how God's using biblical counseling to draw people to himself and people are being saved. That's a wonderful part of biblical counseling that's, uh, that we get to hear about and see. And it's incredible to sit in the front row and watch God change a heart. And I know there's a number of you in here that have experienced that and get that. And God's word is truly sufficient. And it's sufficient to dress all of our problems in life for holiness and godliness. And that's truth. But, but dear church, we have a really serious problem, <clears throat> very serious problem, because there's another truth in our enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that's truth. And worldly wisdom is sneaking into the church, which James calls unspiritual and of the devil. And God's people are seeking and accepting man-centered advice when God's best is God-centered advice through his church and his people, ministering the word of God to one another in truth and love and watching the wonderful counselor, Jesus, do the changes. I had to learn this the hard way. I was one of those 
sheep that wandered down the, she, uh, the street, and I was in biblical counseling for, or excuse me, it was not biblical counseling, it was uh, counseling from a Christian psychological counseling firm for about 10 years. The Bible came out less than five times. <clears throat> it was marriage counseling, and um, that was before I was introduced, praise God, to biblical counseling. So right now there's over 400 different types of psychotherapy going on right now, and that's growing every day, <clears throat> using a manual that appears scientific and keeps changing its mind on what is mental disorder, as that book defines it. For example, homosexuality used to have a diagnosis code and considered a disorder. It's no longer considered a disorder. So we're in this spiritual war. <clears throat> Anybody else experiencing how things are being twisted in our culture and definitions and words? And it's unbelievable. We are in a spiritual war. I like Erwin Lutzer's new book, uh, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. And he says this, he says, evil never retreats on its own. It only retreats when a greater force is applied against it. Obviously, the only force that is greater than evil is God himself. And he works through the church, the bride of Christ, whose head is our triumphant Lord. <clears throat> and the truth is, as a number of you know, is biblical counseling is truly just one beggar telling another beggar where they found the bread. That's really what it is. We're not bringing any power. We're just bringing people to the good shepherd who says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, and they will listen to my voice. Loved ones, God's, God wants to speak directly to you uh, through his word today to help you. My plea is trust him, trust his word, and trust his people. Uh, the, the wonderful counselor is perfect and loving, and is, as he describes his own heart, gentle and lowly. That's our Lord. So biblical counseling is a ministry that's a consulting and equipping ministry helping churches build a culture of biblical soul care for God's glory. That's why we exist. And it, it began as uh, me sent out as, out as a uh, regional local missionary from my home church, Bethany Baptist. But I honestly feel like I grew up in ministry here at Newcastle. I'll never forget going to school and being on staff as an intern of biblical counseling. And I feel like I really grew up in the church here. So I'm so thankful for that. I praise God for that. And by God's hand of grace, it's grown to a team of 10. And currently, um, as Brent mentioned, seven churches. And there's a, conversations with new churches, too. And Karen and I love Newcastle. Oh, we love Newcastle Church. And that we're aware that there's some hurting people right now in the church. And I just uh, I want to praise God for Pastor Josh, who I think is on a divine appointment right now at Newcastle Bible Church. I think I'm so thankful he's on the leadership team, especially in this season of healing and reconciliation. I think I praise God for that. So, uh, dear Newcastle, we love this church. And I just want to say thank you for your partnership and support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for letting me have a few minutes in service this morning. Thank you, Mike, for all you have done. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we turn to you this morning and acknowledge that you are the great God of heaven and earth. Nothing that exists is outside of your creation. We praise you in your holy name. You are the God of creation and the God of salvation. Thank you for this precious gift of your Son 
Thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself a ransom for our sins. Thank you are easy words to say. Help us to show our appreciation by living for you. Father, we thank you and appreciate so much the blessing that Mike Hansen has been to Newcastle. We ask you to continue to bless Mike and his ministry to those who are hurting. As you continue to expand how and where you're using Mike in biblical counseling ministries, please bless Mike with the means to minister well to all the churches who are benefiting from his service to them and to you. And now, Father, we want to remember our partner church, East White Oak Bible Church and Pastor Scott Burkle. We ask that you bless their services this morning. Please be with Pastor Scott as he ministers to his church. We also ask that you would open the hearts of those in attendance and online that they may be changed for you. And dear God, we ask that you would please be with the leaders here at Newcastle. Lead us, guide us, direct our decisions that all we do would be a praise and an honor to you in your holy name. We ask that you help us to be transparent, honest, and open. We ask you help us to be above reproach, trustworthy, godly men. And now as we open your word, please help us to open our hearts to you. Help us to be willing to be changed for your name's sake. Please be with Pastor Josh as he brings his message to us. Give him the freedom to teach us from his heart unhindered. Again, we just thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, church. Thank you, Mike, for the... Certainly, we're very thankful as we hear of life change. Nothing excites me more than that, to see how the gospel uh, changes hearts and lives. So we're so thankful that you've uh, braved the time change to come and join us this morning. And for those of you watching online, too, we're, we're glad that you're here. We're going to be in Philippians, of course, chapter 1, looking at verses 27 to 30 today. So if you have your Bibles and would like to go ahead and turn there, and if you need a Bible, just feel free to raise your hand and one of our ushers will give you one to you. So Philippians 1, we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 30. And so church, we, we definitely do have a lot to be thankful for, for life change, uh, as we think about the different ministries and the ways that people are serving in this church, so much to be thankful for, from the Refresh Conference Friday night to the, the men's breakfast to uh, out in the hallway, you can see the life group map that went up, um, just some amazing things going on here. So we don't ever want to forget that. So thank you for every single person who is working to advance the kingdom of God here. So we uh, are in Philippians 1, uh, our section today in verses 27 to 30, Paul is shifting gears here. So previously, Paul has been talking about what we call the indicatives. Those are those statements about what God has done for us. Those truths about God, how he has blessed us, how he has set us apart. And so we've heard that and, and Paul has given thanks for them. And now in verse 27, he changes gears and he's going to focus on what we call the imperatives. In other words, it's how the gospel is lived out. It's this command to live in a way that God calls us to live. And so that's what we're going to look at today, living lives as worthy citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So if you have your Bibles now and you're in Philippians 1, please stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. 
starting in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw that I now had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray together. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we acknowledge the difficulty of living life in a worthy manner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge, Heavenly Father, that on our own, we do not have what it takes to do this, but we are thankful for your provisions of grace and the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. May we be empowered today to live in light of these provisions. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you would do anything to get it? Have you ever wondered what it would be like just to live in somebody else's shoes? Maybe a famous person, a celebrity, even if it was only for a day. Well, Adam Little, uh, Adam Litwin had this dream as a, as a uh, child growing up that he wanted to be a doctor. And even as a teenager, he carried a pager and he would page himself, pretending like there was a medical emergency at the hospital that he needed to answer. So he took it pretty seriously. Well, he went to college uh, to, to study medicine. Um, unfortunately, college was a little difficult for him and he had to drop out, but he didn't quit. He ended up moving to California uh, where he started hanging out at the library at UCLA. As he's studying these medical books, one day he was mistaken for a resident in the medical program. Instead of correcting that mistake, he played along with it. He did a few things. He, uh, he developed a story that he was transferred there from another hospital. He fooled them for months. He ate lunch in the cafeteria. Uh, he watched doctors perform complicated surgeries because senior doctors thought that he was a resident. He parked his car in the doctor's lot using a pass he had stolen from someone else. He, became, he uh, started hanging out in the residence's um, lounges and sleeping areas after he stole a key to enter. Uh, he would even sleep in the on-call rooms in case the case went late into the night. So every morning, Adam had a regular routine. He would show up to UCLA Hospital at 5.30 a.m., he put on his white coat and he'd go with the doctors on their rounds to watch these surgeries right here. Finally, he was caught, uh, and he was caught because of his coat. He had a picture of himself on his coat, and everyone noticed it, thought, no, that's really weird. No one else has that. And, and he was arrested. The irony is, uh, Adam, after that, um, has actually gone through medical school, legitimately this time. He's passed uh, the, the four tests that are required. But currently, he is being denied his license because of his past. But that's a different story. Now, now, generally speaking, we wouldn't try to pretend that we're somebody we're not. I don't think there's anybody in here that is getting some kind of ideas. I'm going to pretend to be a doctor from this. We, we just wouldn't do that, right? But what about in our Christian walk? How many imposters are there? How many people are pretending they're someone they're not? We know that putting on a trench coat, that putting on a, a, a lab coat, I should say, and knowing the answers to medical questions is not enough to make you a doctor. 
There's legitimate ways, there's steps you have to go through to do that. The same is true in our Christian life. It's more than just wearing the label of a Christian. It's actually the lifestyle of a Christian that matters. And so what we're going to see today is Christianity is more than a label. It's a way of living. In our passage today, this is part of a a larger structure in Philippians. I refer to it as a chiasm. That's just a fancy way of saying uh, it's pointing us somewhere. So uh, 127 through 218, if you look at the slide right there, you have that first part. So verses 27 through 24, the theme throughout that is live as worthy citizens of the gospel. It's focusing us in on the example of Christ in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And then the third part of it, flowing back out of that, it's, it fits in line with today's message, work out your salvation. So in other words, this whole section from verse 27 through chapter 2 is pointing us in, it's narrowing us in to, to one central focus, Jesus Christ, the example of Jesus Christ. So if you forget Or if you're wondering, what does it look like to live as a citizen of heaven, a worthy citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the text would point you to the life of Jesus. So study that. Now, I know, I know Jesus is more than an example. I know that. I know that. But yet at the same time, he is an example. And that's why Paul includes him there. So Jesus models what a heavenly citizen looks like, how they think, how they act, how they respond. Not only is Jesus used as an example, but later on in chapter 2, Paul uses Epaphroditus and Timothy as two other examples of people who walk as worthy heavenly citizens. So you'll read about those later on. But above all, it's Jesus Christ who stands as our model example. So let's take a look now back at verse 27 uh, and work through this text to, to see our point here. So verse 27, Paul starts off with, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So our first point is this. As worthy heavenly citizens, let's live out our faith in unity. As worthy heavenly citizens, let's live out our faith in unity. So as I've mentioned, Paul makes a shift in verse 27. He shifts away from the indicative, those truths about God, what God has done for us, to the imperative, how then we are to live. He gives them the first command. Only live as citizens worthy of the gospel. So Paul is not going to just tell them to do this. He's also going to show them how to do this. He starts with the word only. Have you ever had a teacher who said, eyes on me. Hey, hey everybody, eyes on me. Look up, look up. Why did they do that? They they get your attention, right? They want you to focus. That's what Paul is doing in this verse right here. Only, I think another way to to say that is one thing. I think it's a little more accurate to translate it like that. One thing. So Paul's telling them one thing. One thing, guys. Remember, I want you to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really care that much for math. I'll use it when I have to. So you don't have to do a lot of counting today, okay? I'm just going to give you one thing. Is that okay? I know you're probably tired today from the time change. If you can remember one thing, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, you got it? Do I need to repeat it? Write it down? Okay. Shortest sermon ever here, right? You can go home now. You got it? Just one thing today. No, I'm going to give you your money's worth. 
So again, if you don't remember anything else, just remember that one thing, live as citizens worthy. Notice, notice that Paul doesn't give a list of commands. He doesn't give this long list of things to do. It's just one thing. That's what Jesus wants you to do today. That one thing, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this, this language of citizenship here, the ESV doesn't have that specifically in there. Uh, I actually prefer the Christian standard translation of this passage a little bit better than the ESV uh, because the idea is live as a worthy citizen. It's to walk as a citizen who is worthy of the gospel. So the main verb in this passage is to, to live as a worthy citizen, to live as a citizen. Now, if you remember, uh, Philippi is a Romanized colony. It's located several thousand miles away from Rome. It's made up of, of citizens of Rome. To be a citizen of Rome was a very unique, special privilege. In Paul's world, only a very small percentage of the Romans were actually citizens, probably less than 5% at that time. So it was very rare for someone to be a citizen of Rome. It was a very big deal if you were. So, so Paul is reminding them that there's a better citizenship even if they are Roman citizens, there's actually a better citizenship that they belong to, and that's a heavenly citizenship. It's a heavenly citizenship. He wants them to know that their heavenly citizenship takes priority over any earthly citizenship that they have. He also wants them to know that their heavenly citizenship impacts the way they live as earthly citizens. So how does their heavenly citizenship play out? And their role as Roman citizens, well, as long as they don't violate or compromise the gospel, they can be faithful Romans. But they must maintain their primary allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. I think it's important to know that the Philippians were up against two challenges. One challenge was that of loyalty. There was a constant pressure to be loyal to someone other than Jesus, to Caesar or some other God over Jesus. Constant squeeze on them to compromise and give their loyalty to someone else. The second challenge was adapting the values, priorities, beliefs of the Roman world. Uh, selfish ambition, uh, self-interest, things like that. Those things characterize the Roman world. So the Philippian Christians were being squeezed. It was hard to be a Christian at this particular time. And, and Paul is writing to them to say, remember that you're a heavenly citizen. You're a heavenly citizen here, not just a Roman citizen, but more importantly, a heavenly citizen. And to wait, the way to live out your faith then is not, it's not thinking of it as a label. I'm, I'm, I'm just got this label on as a Christian. It's a lifestyle. It's a commitment. Now, I believe the same struggle is true in our lives, isn't it? We have a dual citizenship. Yes, we're citizens of America, but we're also, first and foremost, citizens of a heavenly colony, a heavenly kingdom. So we must guard against placing our allegiance in anything other than Jesus Christ. Our heavenly citizenship means we adopt a different set of values, principles, beliefs, and priorities, not in accordance with American citizenship, but instead with the accordance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friends, God does not call you to be a great American citizen. He calls you to be great citizens of his heavenly kingdom. There will be many times when your heavenly citizenship interferes with your American citizenship. In those times, hold fast to the gospel. 
Now, Paul qualifies this citizenship. He doesn't just leave it as citizenship in general, but he says it must be carried out in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, is there anyone here who starts to get a little uncomfortable when you hear that word worthy? Uh Uh-oh, where are we going with this? Live as worthy citizens? What exactly does that mean? Well, I, I recognize the tension. You see, on one hand, we rightly recognize that we're not worthy of God because of our sinfulness. That's true on one hand. Uh, we see that reality in Scripture. When people are, are reluctant to come to Jesus, they, when they come to Him, they say, Lord, I am so unworthy of you. In Revelation chapter 5, why is John weeping? John is weeping because a search was made and no, no one in heaven or on, on, under the earth was found worthy to open the book. So there is the, that reality that none of us are worthy because of our sinfulness. Now, Jesus never corrects people when they acknowledge that. He doesn't give them the therapeutic gospel. No, you're really worthy. Don't you see that? No, he alone is worthy. But yet, on the other hand, we also recognize the other truth that being worthy of God is commanded and expected in Scripture. It's expected and commanded in our Christian walk. And there's a number of passages that show that, that Christians are expected and commanded to walk in a manner worthy of God. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. A few other passages include Colossians 1.10, Ephesians 4.1, and Acts 13.46. So how do we balance these two tensions? On the one hand, we're not worthy because of our sinfulness. On the other hand, we have been called to walk worthily. So what do we do with those two things? Well, I want to address that today. I'm not here to remove all the tension. It's always going to be a little bit uncomfortable. That's not my goal is to remove all that tension. My goal is to help you rightly navigate that tension there. Now, I acknowledge that coming into this, there are people here perhaps this morning whose lives may be in shambles. And I don't want to treat these truths as this cold, uh, mechanical discussion of something that you're coming in here and what we're talking about seems 10,000 miles away from what you're really dealing with today. You need hope today. And what in the world does this discussion on balancing the tensions of our unworthiness and God's call to be worthy, what exactly does that have to do with my life? Maybe some of you are here today having been told or been treated as if you were worthless. Others of you are here with an ongoing sense of failure You're never enough. Others of you feel like you're an outcast. You've been rejected and turned away from people. And others of you come today uh, open and exposed. You feel like people know everything that's wrong with you. You're ashamed. You see yourself as a despicable person. Well, I want you to know that there's a better message than the voice of Satan. Satan's voice tells you that you're all failure. You can never be forgiven. That not even God himself would want you. There is no hope. The therapeutic gospel preaches you're someone worth dying for, but the true gospel is that Jesus dies for unworthy people. I believe we need to take a moment and reflect on this truth. We were not worth dying for, yet Jesus dies for us anyway. Remember that song? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. The foundational basis 
For grace is the person and work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, both to forgive them and to empower them to grow into Christ-likeness. No one, according to God, qualifies for the gift of grace, for we are all unworthy. The fact that no one qualifies means that the gift of grace both exceeds and redefines any human expectation of the giving of grace. After all, human beings do not give the costliest gifts to unworthy people. So the death of Christ for the ungodly is a stunning reversal to what we would expect. You can think about that for a moment. I don't think there's anyone in here, if we're being honest, who would go to the store and buy a diamond ring and go drop it off at someone begging by the roadside. It's not our normal expectation of how he gives gifts, but yet it's the grace of Jesus that, that reverses that. I know that there are many voices that you could listen to, voices of the therapeutic gospel that would stoke your ego and tell you you're someone full of worth and value because of something within yourself. But there's a, vet, a better voice. There is a better voice. One whose voice is true and reliable, who invites you to get out of, your, out of the self-hatred and pride that you're in, His voice invites you to get out of your self-focused and hating thoughts and to come into his, as he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping his love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And it's his voice that sings to you today, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. See, Jesus sings over you, not because you are worthy because of something in yourself. You're not worthy to be saved, but he is the worthy one who saves unworthy sinners. So with those truths, we come to this tension. Now, on one hand, Uh, There are two sides, there are two camps. There are those who would answer this question of how we navigate our unworthiness with this call to, to live worthy of the gospel with the answer, yes, but. Yes, Lord, I I know that we are not worthy, but by our actions, we can demonstrate that we are worthy. We call this legalism. Legalism partially justifies us. It says that God does part of the job. He, he declares us part of the way righteous, and then it's up to us to prove to God, to show God that we're worthy enough. That's one camp. But the other camp is just as wrong. We could call that camp radical grace. And the answer of this camp is, well, you'll never be enough. That's right, you'll never be enough. Jesus has made you worthy. So just stop trying to be worthy and just rest in him knowing that in him you are worthy. So if legalism focuses on doing, then radical grace focuses on being. Now again, you may be wondering why this discussion matters. What's it have to do with anything? Who cares about the ditch of legalism or the ditch of radical grace? Well, it matters because we all have been called to holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. Christians are expected to bear fruit and to persevere to the end. So like a diet, if we're not careful, we can get unbalanced. We can either fall into the trap of thinking that we earn our worth to God or that our efforts don't really matter and we don't have to do too much. 
So let's look at this camp or this ditch of legalism first. So legalism says that, that God views us worthy when we've done enough, when you've repented enough, when you've done enough good, when you've tried enough. Then what? Then God gives you his peace. It's his way of saying, you've done it. Congratulations. You jumped high enough. You got it. I've seen people repent for years, never able to get there, never believing that they were able to do enough good for God. Then after perhaps somehow you do get that, then you spend the rest of your Christian walk trying to keep up that worthiness, trying to keep the rules and follow them. And when you get to the end of your life, what happens? Well, you have a greater hope than the guy across the street who mows his yard on a Sunday and smokes cigarettes that you'll have eternal life. That's a tough battle. Living as a worthy citizen in that camp really depends on your outward actions and efforts. So it's get out your paper. Let's give you some rules. You ready for that? All right, let's talk about hair length. Let's talk about clothes. Let's talk about all these things. That's how you show God. That's how you live as a worthy citizen by keeping all the rules. Now, if you come from this sort of legalistic background, you can easily fall into the old ways of thinking that worthiness is something you have to prove to God. Legalism can either lead us into pride in us believing that we can actually do that or despair, realizing there's just no way in the world that I could possibly do that. But with anything, there's always an unhelpful balance in our spiritual lives. So if one ditch is legalism that emphasizes our work at the expense of God's work within us, then there's a ditch on the other side, which is what we call radical grace, and that is equally dangerous. This ditch would emphasize God's work and under-emphasize any efforts from us. So these folks would say to me, Josh, Josh, really now, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't command people to live as worthy citizens. That's law. That's law. Whenever you're telling people something to do, you're giving them law. I mean, we're gospel-believing Christians. We don't need that law stuff. Give them the gospel. Oh, okay. Uh, what do you mean by that? What do you mean give them the gospel? Well, they, they, they need to read this verse. They need to understand this verse, not as a command to keep, but as a promise to believe. It's the promise that they're already worthy heavenly citizens. So they need to just remember that. They need to rest in that. Josh, you, you need to give them some R&R. R&R? Uh, rock and roll? No, not rock and roll. Rest and remember. Rest in knowing what Christ has done for them. Rest in Jesus and then remembering how they are justified in him. That's what they need. Now, it's true. It's true, right? There's partial truth in that, that we need to rest in the finished work of Christ. We need to remember what he has done for us. But the problem with all that is it takes the effort. It takes all the gas out. So the result is that spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort has been defeated. I'll say that again. So the result is that spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort has been defeated. There's no longer any holy sweat if all we need to do is rest and remember. So what's it mean then? So you're asking me, all right, Josh, then what's it really mean? What's the right way to approach this? If it's not about us qualifying to be good enough for God, or if it's not about just resting in Jesus. 
So to walk worthy of the gospel means that we must live in such a way that the world sees how worthy, precious, and gracious Jesus is. We're going to unpack that. So to walk worthy of the gospel means to live in such a way that the world sees how worthy, precious, and gracious Jesus is. We've already given you the example of Jesus. That's how to do it. I'm going to give you a couple examples of how not to do it. In Genesis 34, if you go back all the way to your Old Testament, a couple of Jacob's sons uh, get into some trouble at one point. Their sister has been greatly sinned against, and so they take matters into their own hands, and they uh, ambush, and they really set up, uh, set up this thing for the, for the men and, and then kill them all. And Jacob says this, he says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. You made me stink, boys. So what the boys did was they made dad look bad through their actions. They did not live as worthy sons. Father looked bad. So Jacob was viewed very poorly. Another example, you're probably a little more familiar with this one, would be Esau. So again, Esau, as you remember, was the firstborn. The firstborn had that promise of the birthright. So one of God's greatest special promises is that through the line of of his chosen ones, redemption would come. The greatest honor anyone could have was being in the lineage of the Savior. And Esau was right there. What did Esau do? Remember that? He got hungry that one day, and it says he despised his birthright, treated God's promises as as if they were no big deal. So Esau did not walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He despised God's blessings. His actions did not live in such a way that the world saw how worthy, precious, and gracious his heavenly, his heavenly father was to him. So think about a mirror. What does a mirror do? A mirror reflects something. It does not project something. So a mirror is to reflect the one, it's, uh, the one, the one who's, who it's supposed to reflect, right? And our lives as Christians are to reflect the Father. So to live in a worthy manner really means to reflect Christ to the world like a mirror would. We're not projecting something in and of ourselves to people. We're reflecting Jesus and his greatness and his worthiness to people. But what happens to mirrors? Maybe this is just mirrors in my house. Probably not your house. Remember, because I don't have an iron. So m- mirrors in our house get dirty. And, and you're, you're kind of looking through them and, okay, I don't, uh, ah, found some spots on me that, that I didn't notice before. Oh, it's just, and then you clean the mirror. It's like, okay, now I, now I can see clearly, right? So as Christians, we're living in a worthy manner, but we're constantly removing those obstacles, those things that would hinder our reflection of Jesus. Well, that would raise the question then, why must we walk as worthy citizens of the gospel? Well, first, to glorify God. So walking in a, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel points all the glory back where? To God. I don't like saying that we make God look good because God is good. We don't make him good, but we reflect, we display to the world that God is always good. Secondly, we must walk as worthy citizens to display fruit of our salvation, to, disp- to display the fruit of our salvation. So how do people know that we're really followers of Jesus Christ? 
Is it by putting on the lab coat? Is it by putting on a label? Hey, I'm a, I got the bumper sticker, I'm a Christian. Is that how they know? No, it's by the way we live. It's not what saves us, but it is the evidence of a saved life. So where does the gospel fit in? Well, we've mentioned some of that already, but the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is the only worthy one. Jesus Christ is the only worthy one. His worthiness enables us to have a right relationship with God, not through our own efforts, but through Jesus Christ. And the gospel is that reminder that God provides graciously through Jesus Christ to enable us to walk worthy through His grace and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is worthy. God makes provisions through Jesus Christ to enable you and I to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So thank the Lord, it's not self-effort. What are the evidences of living in a worthy life or living in a manner worthy of the gospel? So notice that Paul expects there to be evidence and he's unpacking that as we continue throughout these verses right here. So first, Paul mentions it's the gospel that's the standard we're to live life by. Not other people's opinions, but the gospel. And when he hears a report about them, he wants to hear it, he wants to hear in it that they are living according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think a lot of people live by the gospel of John Doe or by the gospel of themselves, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ we're to live by. Secondly, they give evidence to living life worthy of the gospel by standing firm. So Paul tells them to stand firm there. This word has military connections to soldiers standing in combat, not giving ground to the enemy. So don't think of standing firm here as simply just leaning up against the wall. Uh, standing firm is not, to, it's, it's not taking it easy and doing nothing. It's fighting for the sake of the gospel. So the Philippians needed this encouragement to stand firm. Remember, they're being attacked. Literally, uh, they're under pressure to compromise. Opponents wanted to divide the Philippians, to take sides. And like soldiers in battle, the Philippians needed to stand firm in the face of those challenges. Does that describe anyone in this room today? You need to stand firm. The encouragement to stand firm. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't divide when faced with opposition for your faith. So the evidence of living in a worthy manner includes standing firm in one spirit and mind. Paul mentions that there in verse 27 as well. That's uh, further evidence of living in a worthy manner. Notice, now in your Bibles, if you take a look at that, notice that spirit isn't capitalized. So most translations take this in reference to the human spirit, uh, in reference to unity. We use it in a way like the team was one spirit. They were united now that's possible, it's also possible that Paul is referencing the Holy Spirit instead, and I would actually agree with that. I think there's stronger evidence to suggest that Paul is referring to the, the Holy Spirit here. So this, typically in, in Philippians, Paul uses a spirit in connection with the, with the Holy Spirit. This same phrase outside of Philippians always refers to the Holy Spirit. So I think those two combinations would lead me to believe that Paul is saying, Stand fast in the Holy Spirit, which would include unity within that. Now, all of that has been a long first point, but I think it was really important because we've gotten to our first command here in Philippians, and I, want you, I wanted you to rightly understand how we're supposed to respond to those commands. 
The right, the right way, the right way to, to process that, to, to take that into action. So our next several points will be a lot shorter than this. But our second point is this. As worthy heavenly citizens, let's work hard to live out our faith. As worthy heavenly citizens, let's work hard to live out our faith. You see that at the end of verse 27 there. He says, uh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of the Christ so that whether I come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now get this, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, so Paul's imagery of Christians in battle carries into the last part of verse 27. He says, one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So worthy heavenly citizens work hard together to live out their faith. So this phrase, one mind, reminds the Philippians that they have been called to maintain the unity which Jesus has created. Now being united in mind doesn't mean we must be uniform in everything. So God didn't create us to be exact clones of each other. You have to think exactly the same thoughts about every single thing. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about. So unity, not uniformity. Now striving, uh, the ESV was, was striving there. Um, I, I think another word is contending that has athletic and military connections. So it brings to mind the fight of gladiators. In Paul's world, there would have been a lot of gladiator fights. You picture those, a fight to the death, one-on-one, -on -one, wrestling, getting down in the mud. And so that is what Paul is calling the Philippians to do, to engage in the gospel together, to fight as gladiators, spiritual gladiators, that is, suffering, struggling, and sweating together. Do we think it's easy to live out our faith? Is it supposed to be easy? Are we surprised that we face opposition in our efforts to engage in the gospel? And even more so, do we find at times that it's difficult to contend with others in the faith, to, to work together with others in the faith instead of against them? Do we ever find that that's difficult to work with others in the faith instead of against them? Well, as we've already mentioned, Paul doesn't expect them to carry out this gospel unity by their own strength. It's God's spirit. It's God's strength who enables them to do this. So citizens worthy of the gospel are going to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Side by side gives us such a, a wonderful imagery, a wonderful picture of Christians working alongside of each other. They're not fighting against each other but they're side by side working for the faith of the gospel. So it's the soldier language. The soldier language pictures this group of soldiers all together in teamwork, side by side against the onset of the enemy. They're, let, they're holding the line. They're not letting anybody through, no cracks. They're fighting with each other, not against each other. So the Philippians, Paul was calling to strive to advance the gospel, not in the same way in which people in the world would seek to do this. They were not to use military force, deceit, strategies of the world, those kind of things. No, instead, as we'll, as we'll see soon, they were to engage in the world with love, humility, service, sacrifice, even to the point of death. Now, let's be, let's be honest. It's very hard to live this way in the world. 
It's hard to live with heavenly virtues, values, beliefs, and priorities in a world that rejects the lordship of Jesus Christ and that, that, and that has turned to idolatry. And so Paul wants the Philippians to know that they should expect opposition for standing firm. They better expect it. And it's to that point that he turns to next. So point number three, as worthy heavenly citizens, let's not let opposition stop us from serving God and suffering well. As worthy heavenly citizens, let's not let opposition stop us from serving God and suffering well. So notice there in verse 28, Paul encourages the Philippians and not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. So he tells them not to be, in fri- not to be frightened. Now, intimidating is actually a, a better understanding of this. So frightened can convey this uh, emotional sense. Intimidation, though, is, is really the idea he's getting at. It's, it's the idea of being pushed around, being hindered from gospel mission. And that's the pressure the Philippians are up against being intimidated, being pushed around for the sake of the gospel. Now, I do want to be clear. Most of us, if not the majority of us in this room, have not been in the situation that Paul is in. Now, we think of being intimidated as uh, somebody, um, we didn't get our way. Maybe we were socially rejected. Uh, someone's just got a bigger physical force than us. That's, that's that kind of intimidation. That's not what Paul is talking about here. This intimidation of the Philippians is a real danger to them. Now, I do think there are legitimate ways in which we could see this kind of opposition and and attempts of intimidation in our area, maybe not to the degree yet that Paul and the Philippians were experiencing, but in real ways. If we seek to do ministry in the community, like the video Mike showed, if we seek to do that, at some point we will face severe opposition. We might be slandered, we might be sued, we might be boycotted, we might be dragged for the mud, but let it be for the sake of the gospel. So the situation Paul is describing is a real threat. This word and description of intimidation is used in other contexts of describing a stampede of horses. If you've ever seen a stampede, it's this uncontrollable force, this uncontrollable movement. There was one time in my life when I played cowboy Uh, A friend uh, asked me to help move some cows from a pasture to take them down the road to uh, back to his house. I thought, no problem. Hadn't got those cows more than 20 feet and the sucker started a stampede. And the corn was about that tall and they hit that cornfield and they took out that cornfield. I've never seen anything like that in my life. When you get a bunch of animals moving like that, there is no stopping them. Thankfully, it was his brother's field, but he never asked me to help him again. (laughs) So this is what, this is the, this is the uh, force that the Philippians are up against. They're up against this stampede, this opposition right there, all right? This, this is a real danger to them. Yet, Paul is telling the Philippians to stand firm, not be intimidated. In fact, he adds, not in anything. Oh, wow. Wow. As one commentator says, the Philippians should not run from any battle, back down from any attack, compromise anything, or concede in any way. So absolutely nothing should discourage or stop the Philippians from living as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel. How is that even possible? Well, 
In the overall context, Paul wants the Philippians to remember that God is ultimately in control. Caesar is not in ultimate control. The Roman army is not in ultimate control. It's God is. So nothing comes into our life, including opposition, unless it first comes through God's hands. The Philippians, as members of that heavenly colony, should not be intimidated by members of the earthly Roman colony. The same is true with us. As citizens of a heavenly colony, the kingdom of heaven, we should not let citizens of the earth intimidate us in the advancement of our gospel mission. A second reason that Paul gives to live as heavenly citizens uh, without being intimidated by opposition is because persecution is a sign of our salvation. Persecution is actually a sign of our salvation. So understandably, not all of the Philippians were handling this persecution well. Some of them wanted out of it. God, I don't understand why we have to be in this. Just get me out of this. They viewed it as a sign that God was against them. But Paul's thought is the opposite. Persecution and suffering serve as signs of our salvation, functioning positively for believers and negatively for unbelievers. Let me explain that. So persecution and suffering are not signs that those who are, to those that are mistreating and hurting the Philippians. They, they can't see that. Enemies of the Philippians can't see how this is a sign from God. The sign is for the Philippians. The Philippians see this as a sign that even worse judgment is coming upon those who mistreat them. Yes, it's bad what's happening to them, but this is just a small picture of what's coming to those who would oppose God's people. So the sign for the Philippians and for us is this, that those who hurt and mistreat God's people will one day suffer an even worse fate. They will experience eternal separation from God. In a positive way, persecution and suffering also function as a sign to God's people of salvation that one day God will eternally deliver them from sin and its consequences. So I hope if you are experiencing persecution, if you ever do, that you can see it as a sign from God of your salvation. Now, there are, there are uh, sometimes we were asked why we don't talk more about eschatology here at Newcastle. I'm going to do that right now. Paul is a le- uh, Philippians is a letter about eschatology. Eschatology means last things. But it doesn't present some kind of left-behind theology. It, it, what, what Paul doesn't dive into the weeds trying to make connections with current political events and bodies of water drying up. But here's what he does do. He lays out for the Philippians that one day Jesus will return to vindicate and reward his people. He looks forward to the day when his body will be transformed and he will be with the Lord. And he calls the Philippians to do the same. The eschatology that the Philippians needed was not some details that we think are so important. The eschatology they needed to know is that Jesus was returning and would make things right. Their enemies would be destroyed and Jesus would do away with everything that stands against God and his people. It's this kind of eschatology that gives the Philippians strength to stand firm, knowing that God is completely sovereign over their suffering and opponents, over even their perseverance in the faith, and over, the fi- over their final salvation and destruction of their enemies would enable and motivate them to live in gospel-powered and spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. So believing that God is sovereign even over suffering enables the Philippians to see that suffering is actually a gift of God. 
Now, normally, if I took a poll, I don't think anybody would see that, right? None of you would say that suffering is a gift of God, but that's what we see in this text right here. Can you think of viewing suffering or persecution in this way? It's hard to believe, isn't it? Now, to be clear, Paul is not talking about the kind of suffering like I had to suffer in line at the Walmart on Black Friday, or I, I, was, I suffered in, this morning when I got in my cold car. Oh, goodness, it was 30 degrees in there and had to wait till that heat finally turned it up. It's not that kind of suffering that he's talking about. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. We don't typically include suffering in our discussion of the gifts that Paul gives to his, or that God gives to his people, but suffering is just as much of a God gift as faith is. Suffering is a gift of God to grow his church and to grow his people. Most of Western Christianity in today's world thinks that they seek freedom and goodness apart from suffering. But in Paul's theology, the opposite is true. Because suffering is something that God's people share in, true freedom actually comes through suffering. God uses people who deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow the example of Jesus to minister to the world. So what have we seen today? We've seen this call to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've seen the reasons for that, for God's glory and as evidence of our salvation, and we've seen the power behind it. God supplies his spirit and grace to enable us to live in this way. If you're here today and you're stuck, maybe it's those lies of Satan that you've been buying into, those feelings of unworthiness, that self-despair, that self-pity, I'd encourage you to come up afterwards and let us pray for you. Talk to us about that. But let's go to the Lord right now in prayer to ask him for grace to be able to live in this manner. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we have addressed a very challenging verse today. This call, this command to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel, worthy of your gospel. And what a high calling that is. What a majestic gospel we have. What a glorious God we serve. How could we possibly ever live worthy of that? But Lord, we are thankful for the reminder of Jesus Christ, who is the worthy one, who meets us, who gives us grace, who loves us. So I pray today, Lord, that we leaving out of here will now live as worthy citizens. Lord, let it not be by our own strength and efforts, but may it be by your grace. To that end we pray, amen. As we respond to the word.
your proclamation that the many parts of the body of Christ be affirmed in their right relation as we long and wait for the groom to come may we learn to love spur each other on may our hearts be so consumed by you that we never cease to pray when that day arrives and the race is won when our pleas give way to deliverance songs begin and a multitude from every tribe and tongue wearing robes of white will stand before your throne and our hearts will be so consumed by you that we'll never cease to break may our hearts be so consumed by you benediction from chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, if you'll say that with me. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. So just a reminder, the exit offering for Mike and uh, the Biblical Counseling Ministries as you go your way out and invite you to uh, the chapel where we'll hear more from Mike and, and his ministry there. So may God bless you today.